Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. I don't know why I was waiting for you to do the why hello <laughs> when I'm usually the one that starts in you're like why hello <laughs> that's all good my tired brain over here probably can't handle starting the podcast today I'm just gonna stare at you until you start it <laughs> I know it was like we made full eye contact I was like it, it's me it's me okay <laughs> I got distracted by my nose twitching over here, which is probably related to me being tired. I'm not sure. <laughs> when Ree gets uh, tired, her nose twitches like Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa doesn't grow. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Anyways, Ree, how are you doing this week? Pretty good. A little tired. Pretty busy, but we're making it by. <laughs> How are you? You feel that? I have been battling ants for the last week in my kitchen. Oh. <laughs> as, as a word to the wise, if you're battling ants in your kitchen and you have run out of borax or anything else that, like, kills them, they don't like clove because they can't digest eugenol. Oh. So my <laughs> my sadistic <laughs> little brain. <laughs> yeah, get ready. There's going to be a lot of in my fucking shit today. I've been up since like 6 a.m. Um, I mixed eugenol or clove with sugar, added some water, and sat it on the, I sat it on the counter for them. There's now a pile of dead ants on my counter that I need to clean up, but quite frankly, I feel victorious in their fucking bodies (laughs) sitting there. Victory! (laughs) I have poisoned the ants! (laughs) Take them back to the colony too, please. (laughs) But they also do not like peppermint oil, so whenever I see one just wandering about that's away from my eugenol trap, I'm like, I'll spray you with fucking Christmas, okay? <laughs> Y'all need Jesus and to get the fuck out of my kitchen. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so that's Y'all been need my last Jesus. Week. Y'all need Jesus and to get out of my kitchen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we've been battling ants on and off. Not quite to the extent it sounds like you are. But yeah, it's it's been pretty on and off for us. There's like waves where they come and we fight them off and then they go away for a while and then they come back. So we'll see. Yeah. Apparently the cat found a couple ants today. So now we're like, oh, we got to put everything on high alert. They might be coming back. So See, Salem doesn't go after bugs. She tortures them. 
I guess great minds think alike, but at least I got the fucking job done. Um, you followed through. This last week when I came home, she had a little hunter spider. Now, if you know me, I'm not super afraid of spiders. I'm not a fan of them, but I'm not like arachnophobia. And this poor spider was looking at me and she got a leg off of it. And this poor little hunter's looking at me like, help! <laughs> I was just like, are you shitting me right now, Salem? Like, if you're gonna do the job, do the job! <laughs> Kai used to do that with crickets when he was a baby. He would get crickets and chew their legs off and then spit their bodies out. And the sad little cricket would be, like, twitching on the floor. And I, I'd just leave them all over the floor for us to step on. And... Number one, I was like, ew, gross. And number two, I was like, you sadistic little puppy. Like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Yeah, Salem's done that forever. I think the only thing that she's successfully brought to me dead was a scorpion. And I think that's because she found it that way. I'm hoping it's because she found it that way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not in this house, though. Mom, mom, it's not in this house. It was back in frickin', um... Oh, God. Peoria, or wherever I was living over in Phoenix. Glendale. <laughs> yeah, I always saw more scorpions over in the Phoenix area than I ever did in, like, Havasu. I guess they just like it over there. Yeah. We had grass in our area, and, like, I always watched the kids, like, run barefoot through that shit. I'm like, you're brave. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, multiple things that live in the desert that I probably would not want to run barefoot through, so. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no. I saved the barefoot walks in the forest, okay? <laughs> we go way up north where everything dies because it's way too fucking cold. And you shouldn't be walking barefoot anyways, but it feels nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. But anyways, this week, guys, we do have a doozy of an episode for you, and it's actually Mm -hmm. one of our first episodes that we're going to be doing this way. We're bringing to you a murder and haunted place put together. Woo! Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, you only get the murder this week. It's my turn. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, it's a big enough case that if we squished it all into one, you guys would be sitting around listening to us talk for probably another two-hour episode like we did at the very beginning of the podcast. (laughs) We all don't want that, so we're going to break it into two. It's funny because that's like one of our best episodes, too. It's like, it's skyrocketed on our like analytics. Like It's got the most (laughs) listens. I'm just like, why is this so popular? It's two hours. I'm like, honestly, I listened to a three-hour podcast the other day, and I kept going. I'm like, am I in the same episode? Where am I? (laughs) Right? I feel like I listened to a one-hour podcast, and I'm just like, this thing's still going? It's not over yet? (laughs) So thank you, listeners, for sticking out for us and actually listening to the full two hours. They were interesting stories. I'll give it back. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, get, I don't know. Maybe that reflects well on us that we just told those stories really well. I don't know. Oh, I hope I so. Know. That would make me happy. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, guys, I hope you look forward to this episode. Here come our trigger warnings. While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, 
It's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode, we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following. Children, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. As always, listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized, please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800-843-5600. Seven, eight, for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-72. And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show. And we are back. So if you haven't gotten out and you want to get out, now's the time. (laughs) (laughs) Run while you can. (laughs) We can't run from this, but you still can. (laughs) For a generous donation of 25 cents a day, you could save Reed the trouble of listening to me talk about true crime. We do have a thank you to say that we should have done in our banter, but we're doing right now. But my neighbor actually recommended this topic to us last week. Yeah, he messaged me. He's like, have you ever heard of this case? Or you guys should look into this case. I was like, it's already on the books, but we can do it the following week. (laughs) (laughs) It was very good timing. But thank you for the recommendation. We always want to hear listener recommendations so keep them coming yes yes always keep them coming and if you got stories send them to us we look forward to making listener tales we want to make listener tales (laughs) yes we want to hear your tales send us your tales (laughs) in all their glory yes (laughs) all right so 
I do have vocab lessons with Katie this week. Yay! I only got two, <laughs> two of them for you, though, unfortunately. So the first one that I have is lividity or liver mortis. Your, your face just has no idea what that is. <laughs> That's a big word that I've never heard before. <laughs> so this is a post-mortem discoloration that's due to the gravitational pull of blood in the body into dependent capillaries and veins. So basically, once an individual has died, and be this as human, animal, mainly animals, when you die the gravitational pull on your body starts bringing all the blood down to the base surface. So you'll see a discoloration on the top of an individual, like per se, if I'm laying on my back and I've passed away, goodbye world. Um, <laughs> if I passed away on my back, you're going to see that coloration of like red splotchiness or like a deep red. And the top of me is going to be almost like a whitish blue. This is because all the blood is being gravitationally pulled to the point of gravity. So, kind of makes sense. I don't know. Because yeah. it's no longer circulating. You have nothing to keep it going in you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That clicks. Okay. And the next one, I actually had to ask her if I had to add it. And she's like, I have no idea what that means. I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go grab it real quick. I'm like, I don't know where my logbooks are, so I had to Google it. Um, yeah, it's like, if I don't know what it means, our listeners probably don't know what it means. <laughs> so the next one is a hung jury. And this is a jury whose members cannot agree on a verdict. So let's say in the instance of... I don't know what a good case would be. This case is a good case, but we're not going to talk about that until the end. Um, <laughs> we're not there yet. You we're not wait. there yet. But per se, let's say 11 of your 12 jurors decide that the individual is guilty, but one of them decides that they're innocent. With a unanimous voting from a jury, you have to have all 12 members meet the same consensus of what's going on with 11 meeting guilty and one meeting innocent it ends in a hung jury and you can be retried at that point and it's it's a whole mess of the situation it doesn't count as double jeopardy because your jury is hung there's no decisive outcome to the case okay okay makes sense awesome <laughs> <laughs> all right onwards onwards and forwards to Villisca, iowa so as an overview of Villisca, it was a town located in montgomery county iowa founded in 1858 by dn smith of chicago burlington and quincy railroad the city started as a small settlement originally named the Forks for its position between the Middle and West Noaday River. And I'm not sure if I said that correctly, but that's how it looks. So that's what we're going with. But was renamed to Villisca by D.N. Smith, to which he stated meant pretty place or pleasant view in the language of the area's original Native American inhabitants. 
the actual meaning for this word. And I saw on your notes too, Rhea. I'm like, this is mine. I'm taking oh, it. Oh, that's <laughs> fine. I was like, if Katie doesn't say this, I have to say it. So I'm glad you're saying it. <laughs> the actual meaning for Villisca is derived from the native word Willisca, which means evil spirit. Not a good sign for no. the beginning of our story. <laughs> no. No. It's it's not a good sign at all. So by 1910, the small city had grown from a population of roughly 450 people to approximately 2,039 people. And the community was thriving. Several hotels, restaurants, stores, theaters, and manufacturing plants flourished in the agricultural-based economy. Now, more than two dozen passenger and freight trains stopped at the depot in Villisca each day, sustaining the town's growth and promising it a bright future as its time went on. In 1912, that growth grew once again as the population soared to 2,500 people with the building of the only publicly funded armory in the state of Iowa allowing for military operations to work in the environment being used for aid in the 1916 expedition to Mexico as well as World War One World War Two the Korean War and eventually Vietnam so this was a very military predominant community as time went forward however that's kind of getting ahead of the time that we're focusing on so we're going to go back to 1912 Villisca. It was a dry town and it was remarkably safe and people didn't really lock their doors. It was a very tight-knit community as most small cities are and individuals knew each other very closely. The Moore family was one that was known throughout the community for their generosity, their kind demeanor, and was very well liked overall. The family consisted of six persons, Josiah B. Moore, or Joe, and I will be referring to him as Joe as we continue on, because Josiah is quite the mouthful for me, especially after <laughs> only a couple hours of sleep. Um, Joe, who was 43 years old and head of the house, was a very successful businessman in Villisca. He had been noted to be a man that could excel in everything that he lent his hand to, meaning that he basically had the Midas touch if he could hold it he could do it i'm like props to you joe i couldn't <laughs> right seriously i'm like i'm pretty sure like when i did um habitat for humanity back in like high school i i like soared through the hours that i had to do for that it wasn't in rep reprimands i was a good kid okay it was an internship I put as many hours as I could into one week, and I got that internship done in one week. Damn. Because I'm like, that's not happening. I'm not manual labor stable. <laughs> At least not in that sense. I'm like, I, I have no problem going up on roofs and everything. It was the freaking, like, sitting on the ladder and you'd hammer, and because it's not, like, attached to anything, the ladder would, like, fly back a little bit and then come back down uh, I'm like, yeah no not for me <laughs> so joe having accumulated a reasonable amount of wealth in his 30s married sarah moore and went on to have four children their names are harriman montgomery moore 
who was 11, Mary Catherine Moore, 10, Arthur Boyd Moore, 7, and Paul Vernon Moore, 5. Now, Sarah was approximately 35 at this time. However, articles do differentiate. Um, also, as we continue on, there might be some differences in how these names are called out. Mary might appear more as Catherine in some articles, and in some places in the story, I might have listed her as Catherine as well. Arthur typically is listed as being Boyd more, but those are really the only two like differences that are going to happen throughout this. So Catherine is Mary, and Boyd is Arthur. It might be a little bit confusing. If I can correct myself, I will, but you'll see that in other articles as well if you decide to go dig things up. So let's go to the morning of June 9th, 1912. This was like any other June morning. It was warm and sunny, and people were out and about doing their usually scheduled routines before an event at the local Presbyterian church that afternoon. For the Moors, however, it started out busy with Sarah and Joe preparing the children for the day they had planned ahead. Sarah had been the co-facilitator at the Children's Day event being held at the church that evening, meaning that the family would most likely need to get there earlier than the rest of the crowd and the whole family would be attending. To which, if you've held an event like that or been a part of it, like, I remember sitting there, like, all day at some times. <laughs> Specifically, like, in elementary school, because my mom was very um, interactive with the community over there. So <laughs> I was there a lot. I'm like, I'm at school on Saturday, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so there were activities that would go throughout the afternoon and into the early evening. However, this event didn't end until around 9.30 p.m. after all the children had finished their performances and activities. And the parents, of course, finished mingling. The Moors prepared to leave around 9.30 with two more children joining them than they had originally arrived with, which is also a very common thing. <laughs> um, earlier that evening, Mary Moore had asked if it was okay for her friends Lena and Ina Stillinger to spend the night as the two girls had confided in her that they were afraid to walk home to their grandmothers in the dark. To which is a usual response, but I also wanted to bring up that according to Morbid Podcast, I love you girls, if you listen to us, I will scream and like poop my pants because you're amazing. <laughs> but their coverage on this case is a lot more extensive than what I'm going to do. So I suggest like if you want deeper material on this and specifically in the murders, go check out their episodes. I think it's 171 and 172 in the Morbid Podcast episode lineup. In their coverage of this case, they had mentioned that the streetlights were all turned off this evening. And this was due to the town council and the Villisca Public Service Companies being in a disagreement for months at this point regarding the streetlights. It was requested that the streetlights be replaced for better lighting or at least improvements be made upon the existing ones to provide better lighting to the area. This disagreement finally reached its tipping point this evening with the Villisca Power Company turning off the streetlights in protest 
and they were not turned back on until the following Monday. Wow. Yeah. That's uh That was quite a major a while. Like, that's like a fucking fuck you to your face. Like that was yeah. a full finger just sticking it right up against somebody's nose. Seriously. <laughs> Damn. Um so this meant that the outside lighting was only sourced by the moon, which I went and looked it up. It was a waxing crescent moon. So while it was getting towards its full point, it wasn't really there yet. So it was still really dark. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And possibly a few candles in nearby houses. But other than that, it was pitch black out. So upon the Moors phoning a, I believe, Blanche Stillinger, however it could have been Sarah Stillinger, to receive the approval for the two Stillinger girls to spend the night, the eight made their way back to the Moore home, arriving around 9.45 to 10 p.m. The children reportedly had a late night at the home and finished it off with evening milk and cookies. Then the whole house retired to bed for the evening. Which I'm like, that's that's a nice night. Milk and cookies before bed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was like the best way to end the night as a kid. Right? So around midnight to 4 a.m., a stranger who had been casing the home, presumably, retrieved an axe from the property, entered a farmhouse silently, closing the door behind them as they did. Once inside, the intruder found an oil lamp sitting on a nearby dresser, removed its chimney, placing it out of the way under a chair, and bent the wick to minimize the flame. Upon lighting the lamp, they turned it down to its lowest setting, so only a glimmer of light could be cast in the sleeping house. On the morning of June 10th, 1912, around 5 a.m., Mary Peckham, who was in her 60s, presumably, and the Moore's next-door neighbor, had awoken and began her morning routine. Hanging some laundry from her clothesline when she noticed that the Moors had not yet begun their daily chores. Miss Peckham presumed that with the long night before, they may have just been sleeping in an extra hour or so and decided to go about her business until again at 7 a.m. She noticed that the house stood quiet with an odd stillness, as she put it, and began to groan concern. Ugh. Yeah, I'm like, that's never good, especially when you have a good amount of children in that yeah. house. There's no way it's still quiet. Like, kids cannot be that quiet for that long. Yeah, absolutely not. So, with this concern, she proceeded to walk over to the house and knock on the Moore's door. When no one answered, she tried to open the door, only to discover that it was locked. So, she decided to go let out their chickens from their coop and allow them to roam roam around while she called Ross Moore, Joe's brother. Ross arrived around 8 a.m. and, similar to Miss Peckham, received no response when he knocked on the door and shouted to his family. Ross, who had a copy of the house key, unlocked the front door and entered while Miss Peckham stood on the porch. Ross first entered the parlor and opened the guest bedroom door, 
where he found Ina and Lena, Stillinger's bodies, on the bed. He immediately returned to the front porch and told Miss Peckham to call Hank Horton, the primary peace officer in Villisca at the time, because something terrible had happened. Now, there are some articles that differentiate that he found the parents first, but the majority said that he found Ina and Lena first. Now, Horton arrived on the scene about 30 minutes after Ross and began thoroughly searching the Moore house to discover that the entire family and the two Stillinger girls had been brutally bludgeoned to death. He returned to the front porch to Ross, who was sitting on the porch steps, still in disbelief, understandably so, and stated, my God, Ross, there's someone murdered in every bed. To which you might be going, wow, that's quite a thing for an officer to say to somebody, but... Horton wasn't your average police officer. He was just a peace officer. So he was literally just charged with keeping the peace in the area. He was definitely not emotionally or physically equipped for the scene that he saw in that home earlier. He didn't even have to deal with like drunken people because it was a dry area. The town was dry. Wow. So this was way above his pay grade. Give him a raise. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So now... I do have to hand it to him in 1912. Horton tried his best to keep everyone out until more professionals could arrive to examine the scene, which props to him. He at least tried to secure that crime scene because we'll see in other cases that doesn't really happen. (laughs) (laughs) And I use try as like the key word in the sentence because it didn't really happen here either. So, at this point, word had began to spread throughout Villisca about what was happening at the Moore House, to which Sarah Stillinger, the mother of the Stillinger girls, had attempted to call earlier to give an estimated time of arrival for her two girls being home, and tried again to phone the operator, who told her upon requesting to be transferred to the Moore House that everyone in that house is dead. Wow, that's a way to put it for the the phone operator that couldn't have put it more lightly. Like, oh, maybe you should talk to the peace officer and he can inform you what's going on. They like, just put it. That maybe way. you should walk over there and check it out for yourself. I'm sorry, yeah. I can't connect you right now. You you need to go talk to somebody. I don't know. I don't know what it would have been the correct answer, but I don't think that was. No, that doesn't sound like the right way to put it. To me. No. Oh God. So, a Dr. F.S. Williams was the first medical officer on the scene and determined on lividity that the attacks had taken place around midnight to 5 a.m., like I'd mentioned previously. Which is quite amazing for this time period because there's not a lot of what we have today in modern-day forensics, but he was able to kind of determine... A window, be it a wide one, but it was a window nonetheless. Soon after, Dr. Edgar Hugh, Dr. L. A. Lindquist, the county coroner, 
Dr. J. Clark Cooper and Reverend Ewing arrived at the scene and began to search and process the home. It was found that the axe struck each of the victims between 20 and 30 times. Starting with the parents upstairs, the individual had crept into the room and raised the axe so high above their head that they gouged the ceiling before bringing the flat of the blade back down against Joe Morris's head, crushing the skull and presumably killing him instantly. This individual then turned and struck Sarah with the axe before she even had time to wake up or register what was happening right next to her. They then proceeded to make their way down the hall to where the four more children were sleeping, and there's no evidence to suggest that Harriman, Mary, Boyd, or Paul had awoken before they were killed, nor did the assailant or any of the other children in the house have like sufficient noise to disturb Lena or Ina as they slept downstairs. The killer then descended the stairs and dispatched of the Sterlinger sisters. However, it is discussed that the older sister of the two, Lena, may have been awake when the killer struck as her body was displayed in a defensive like position and there was a wound on her arm. Now, this is unfortunately going to be disturbing, but I think it's important to note that Morbid found information on the body of Lena, and upon further investigation on my side, I found the same information in one of my articles, which I can't remember right now, which means that you need to go check my references. So the way that Lena was found presumed that she was struck in the head and then squirmed down the bed with one hand under her pillow, and then her left leg kicked out from under the sheet sideways. It was noted by Dr. Williams that it appeared as though she had been turned over into her position after she had possibly died for the reason that the blood ran through the pillow onto the bed and was pooling there and her arm under that pillow was not saturated with said blood. It was also found that Lena's underwear had been removed and placed under the bed. It was also bloody because the killer had either attempted to clean themselves or the axe with it. Her nightgown was pulled up above her waist and her legs were splayed out and there was a bloody handprint from the killer placed on her inner thigh. So with Lena being the last to die, the killer went back upstairs and systematically reduced the heads of all six Moore's family members to what can only be described as a bloody pulp. Striking Joe alone an estimated 30 times until his eyes simply were no more and leaving the other six family members unrecognizable. Wow. Definitely spent some time in the house carrying it out. Mm-hmm. The bedcloths were pulled up to cover Joe and Sarah's shattered heads. A gauze undershirt was placed over Harriman's face and a dress was placed over Mary's. He also put clothes over Arthur and Paul before returning downstairs to administer the same horrifying post-mortem desecration to the Stillinger sisters. 
The individual then proceeded to tour the house and ritually hung clothes over every mirror and piece of glass. Which, if you remember correctly, I think it was from one of your episodes, that is to keep the spirits from basically staying in the house. However, it was also recorded that none of the windows were open and they were all very shut. Yeah, um, that was actually something I poked around again a little bit for with this episode to get a refresher on it. But I, I found basically there's multiple different religious or spiritual beliefs, but the most common one being to cover the mirrors so that, uh, well, for two main reasons is what I found. One is so that the spirit can leave and go to the afterlife without becoming trapped in the mirror. And then I also found a common belief that used to be that if you looked in the mirror soon after somebody had died in the house, you may be the next person to die, depending on if you saw the reflection of the dead person looking back at you or your own reflection or a number of things that might signal you have a death coming soon. So there was different superstitions and uh, either spiritual or religious beliefs surrounding it. Um, but it was definitely seemed to be a common belief um in multiple parts of the world for uh, quite a while yeah but continuing on because i presume we'll get more into that with your side of things <laughs> <laughs> um at some point the killer also took a uncooked two pound slab of bacon from the ice box wrapped it in a towel and left it in the downstairs bedroom the killer also appeared to stay in the house for some time after the murders, filling a bowl with water to wash their bloodied hands in it. Sometime before 5 a.m., the killer abandoned the lamp at the top of the stairs, left the axe in the Stillinger sisters' bedroom, and left as silently and unnoticeably as they had come in, locking the doors behind them. So at the point of when this scene has basically been processed and people are starting to come out and get fresh air um there's a crowd growing outside and at one point when dr williams came out of the house shaken he told the crowd who was waiting don't go in there boys you'll regret it to your last day of your life now unfortunately and what goes along the time period itself the advice of Dr. Williams to the crowd was ignored, and as many as 100 curious neighbors and townspeople trampled through the crime scene as they pleased, wow. scattering their own fingerprints. And in one case, an individual even removed fragments of Joe Moore's skull as a keepsake. Uh. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah, I really that's don't really... like that morbid i don't like that at all now unfortunately after a few clumsy and futile attempts to search the surrounding countryside for a transient killer who may have killed these eight people individuals investigating the case had to face the simple truth that there was no sign of the murderer's whereabouts anywhere some theorize that they may have vanished back into their home nearby or many have also theorized that they had a five-hour head start to a location using one of the nearly 30 trains that passed through Villisca each day. 
Bloodhounds were used without success, and the townspeople began to gossip and swap theories of who the murderer could be and began to strengthen their own locks and home security. By sundown of June 10th, there was not a dog to be bought in Villisca at any price, and people were scared that this could happen again to their families. So, going into suspects, and like I said before, the Moore family had a very high reputation throughout Villisca, and they were a church-going family who maintained good connections and strong contacts throughout the community. Ultimately, though, in most cases of being popular or having strong contacts, there also comes a large list of enemies, and Joe Moore had a number of them in both his personal life and his professional one. That being said, <laughs> this case is still cold almost 110 years later to the day, mind you, because we're recording this on June 10th. Ugh. I know, we've done that like three times now. Yeah. And it's not I, I purposeful. That. No, that was not <laughs> planned at all. Ugh. So, I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, no, I'm like, I don't know how to feel about that either. When I saw the date, I was like, wait a minute. Wait a half a damn minute. <laughs> but with this being said, please don't think that a singular individual or any of these individuals that I'm about to talk about are the end-all be-all answer to this case. This is purely speculation. The first suspect was a Frank Jones, a Iowa state senator during the time and father-in-law to Donna Jones, who had been widely rumored in Villisca to be having an affair with Joe Moore. Oh. I know, scandalous women. We gotta hide our ankles, Ray. <laughs> Frank Jones was a tough local businessman and a prominent member of Aliska's Methodist Church. Edgar Epperly, the leading authority on the murders, reported that the town was quickly split along religious lines at this point. The Methodists insisted that Jones was innocent and the Moores' Presbyterian congregation were convinced of his guilt. Although Jones was never formally charged with the murders, there was a grand jury investigation and a prolonged campaign to prove his guilt, which ultimately destroyed and ended his political career. Hmm. Now, there are at least two compelling reasons that Jones had nursed a hatred to Joe Moore. The first was that Joe had worked with him for several years before leaving the position in 1907 to become a rival company in the area. Ooh. Yeah, especially when like you're in a small town and you have to choose between two like companies providing the same thing. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to corner the market. Yeah, it does. Especially if you have better prices too. So it makes it easy to very monopolize that market. Um, the second was the belief that Joe had slept with Jones's daughter-in-law, the local beauty whose numerous affairs were well known in the town due to her indiscreet habit 
of arranging meetups over the telephone, during which calls were placed through an operator. So somebody always knew your business. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I'm like, if I had to live at any time, I, I would probably do like 1920s, 1930s and be a phone operator. Do you know the gossip that would come through those lines? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I never thought too much about that. I'd just be sitting there like, did you hear that Dorothy got the most horrendous haircut? Oh, my God. Her husband's saying that he's going to divorce her. <laughs> <laughs> have my cigarette and all. <laughs> just have my smoker voice going, you know. <laughs> so by 1912, the two families had grown cold to each other, to which point they were literally if they were walking on the same street they would cross it to avoid each other <laughs> to which i'm like that's that's kind of petty and i like it like you see somebody coming at you and you literally like nope we're crossing nope yep. we're crossing children nope. nope cross the street <laughs> <laughs> you can't make me can't make me walk by that person i will not stoop so low i will not stoop so low as to walk by him now, there was denial in the community that the 57-year-old Jones could have possibly even swung the axe himself, but some minds were certain that if he couldn't do it, he would surely pay someone who could. Oh, money talks. Money talks. It was theorized that a man by the name of William Mansfield, sorry, it's William, William, I don't know why my brain's like, William, because the Mansfield keeps getting in the way of my brain. I'm like, we're not there yet. Calm down. <laughs> so a man by the name of William Mansfield was hired by Jones to kill the family. Mansfield turned out to have a very strong alibi for the night, however, and payroll records showed that he had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders. Mm. For others, there was far stronger candidates for the Axemen, including one Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, which I'm like, that is way too many predominant like first name categories in one name. <laughs> it's like John Wayne Gacy, okay? No. You don't go Just there. No, no. Just no. <laughs> so... Kelly was an English immigrant and a preacher known to have a sexual deviant behavior and some mental problems as well. Ugh. Yeah. He had been in the town on the night of the murders and freely admitted that he had left on a dawn train just before the bodies were discovered. There were some things that made Kelly seem like an implausible suspect, such as his height of five foot two and his weight of 119 pounds, in other manners of fit and build. To which I was like, "What is his height manner?" I'm like, "Wait a minute," because when he swung back with the axe, it hit the ceiling. Yep. I'm like, okay, so that that's where height matters if you're questioning the same thing. But it took me a while to understand that. I'm like, oh, oh, I guess that would matter. <laughs> <laughs> However, K 
Kelly was left-handed, which the coroner linguist had determined from the examination of blood spatter in the house that the killer was most likely swinging the axe with his left hand being the dominant force. Kelly was obsessed with sex and had been caught peeping in windows days prior to the murders. And investigators could easily see the links between Kelly and the Moore families. More sinister, however, was that Kelly had attended the Children's Day service held at the Presbyterian Church on the evening of the murders. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it one bit. Mm-mm. Many believe that Kelly had been like spotted spying on the family and become obsessed with them. Ugh. And he even gone as far as to spy on the Moore house that evening. Which, in the creepiest part from the family barn where the bales of hay were stored, there was a knot hole which the murderer could have watched the household slowly and peacefully fade into the night before proceeding to sneak in if they were already located inside the house because there were cigarette butts found in the upstairs attic. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of things going on here. It's like, were they in the house? Were they not in the house? Was this a locked door case? Was it an unlocked door case? Because there's a lot of questions. But Kelly seemed like the most compelling suspect for this case, including the fact that he had sent bloody clothing to a launderer in nearby Macedonia, and an elderly couple recalled meeting the preacher as he boarded a 5.19 a.m. train from Villisca the morning of June 10th. And he told the couple of the gruesome murders that had been committed in the town. This was a huge incriminating statement since the preacher left Villisca three hours prior to the bodies being discovered. Ugh. So... When Kelly returned to Villisca a week later, he began to show great interest in the murders, even posing as a detective, to obtain a tour of the Moore house. Which, if you guys... Yeah, yeah, no. I'll explain. (laughs) Um, If you guys don't know, most individuals that commit a crime will return to the crime scene or try to attend the funeral. It's really weird, but that's just something that happens. He was arrested in 1917 and repeatedly interrogated until he eventually signed a confession to the murder in which he stated, I killed the children upstairs first and then the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe went into the house and killed them. Uh, yeah, that's one messed up guy. Yeah, I'm like, Ooh, there's a lot of red flags going up here. I don't I don't like Preacher Kelly. Can I go <laughs> somewhere else, please? <laughs> uh, this is why I'm this is why I'm a witch. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really not, but I've never been a really big fan of the church. Sorry for anyone out there. <laughs> Who goes to church? To each their own. Not for me. Um, 
He later recanted, and the couple who claimed to have spoken to him the morning of the murders changed their story. Ultimately, the jury on Kelly's first case hung with an 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him, and the second panel freed him. Mm. I know. It made me kind of sad, too, but I'm also like, I don't fully know if he did it or not, so I understand where they're at. Yeah. That's tough. It's a tough one. There was another individual by the name of Henry Lee Moore, who was of no relation to the family and was a serial killer in the time. He was believed to have committed a total of 30 similar murders across the Midwest from 1911 to 1912. To which, if you want to know more information on that case, there's a great article that details the similarities between cases of that time that are believed to be linked to Henry, and I highly advise reading that article. I'll link it, like, literally in the show notes for our podcast and won't be on the, it will be on the reference page but it'll be in the show notes too um but as far as details regarding the involvement in these murders it's kind of f- iffy mm. like there's not enough strong information to suggest that he was even in Villisca at the time oh okay yeah just similarities between cases got it also, I don't want to fully go into detail just because that's a whole can of worms that I'm not ready to open up. <laughs> <laughs> then there was another serial killer, a Paul Mueller, who was an immigrant possibly from Germany, who had been the subject of a year-long unsuccessful manhunt as a sole suspect in an 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts who originally employed him as a farmhand. In the 2017 book, The Man from the Train by Bill James, it's discussed the Velisca Axe murders are a part of a larger scale of murders similar to the theory behind Henry Lee Moore. Once again, because there's a lot to unpack there, we're not going to go into detail. And unfortunately, I didn't have the privilege of reading this book, But the ideology from what I could find online is that it's very similar to the theory behind Henry. Mm. So, yeah. That is the Velisca Axe murders. And the suspects that I found to be most, not, like, condemning, but theories that kind of match up to what's going on there was one other individual i believe it was an andrew like steiner or something like that i don't fully know his name i wasn't gonna really add him in there just because he was a transient man that was just simply stopping through and nobody knew him so they grabbed him real quick but found out later that there was no way that he could have done it Yeah, I think in uh, my episode next week, I briefly mentioned him because uh, there was some speculation on the paranormal side of maybe there's some links to him. Uh, but yeah, from what I read, there, like you said, there wasn't hard evidence proving that it could have been him. So it sounded like mm-hmm. they had ruled him out as a suspect. Yeah. Personally, and this is my speculation alone, I think that Preacher Kelly was probably the most likely individual who had 
the time, the opportunity, the background to it, and knowing how Lena was found, it presumes more likely that, unfortunately, when articles say there wasn't a sign of sexual assault, it does not mean that it did not happen. Mm-hmm. It just means that there are no signs present. And being it is 1912, you also have to question what type of forensic nursing analysis did they do when it came to sexual assault on a younger female. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd have to say I agree that I think um, Kelly is probably the most likely suspect based on the information you provided. Especially, like you said, with the way that, I believe, was it Ina that was the old elder of the two girls? She was the one, or was it... Uh, it's Lena. Lena. Okay, I couldn't remember which of the two girls was the elder one who was found like that. It's okay, there was um, a lot of names this episode. <laughs> I know, I was trying to keep them all straight. Um, yeah, especially how Lena was found. It definitely, I feel like, hints towards some sort of sexual... Line and since there is already a history with the preacher seeming to kind of be going down that road um, of misconduct, I could see it escalating to something greater. Absolutely. But yeah, and just like you said at the top as well, it was a different time where, especially in a small town, you know, everybody knew everybody and you trusted people. So I could very well see them having left their doors unlocked until they got home and someone could have very easily walked in there and gone up to the attic and hid out until everybody was sound asleep and had no clue there was somebody else in the house Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just one of those situations where i don't know if um if the peace officer if he had had more backup readily available and they were able to preserve the scene a little bit better if they could have been uh, more conclusive with the trial or not or if just with the age and what was available to them if there just wasn't enough there no matter what to conclude uh, that it was 100% for sure Kelly but yeah the different suspects it sounds like he would probably be the most likely one based on the information you presented yeah and even expanding on that like as far as it goes like historically forensically like based there wasn't a lot to go on when it came to like forensic evidence like sure you could try to take a print but for the most part like print desks i don't think were developed until later or they were just becoming a very popular thing. And unfortunately, even as we see today, with more popular techniques that come out, they go to the higher funding departments because they're able to afford to purchase that. Also, with the peace officer basically being the main officer in the area <laughs> and not having that experience because, like I said, he didn't even have to deal with drunken brawls or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a dry county People are safe. People are going to church. They're helping their other community members. Like, he had his job done for him. Like, the most that he probably had to worry about was that he had some type of a disagreement or an argument that went on, and he just had to be like, hey, stop it. 
Yeah, definitely sounded like a very homey community up until that point. Very peaceful, very rural, and out of the way where hopefully there wasn't too much going on that he really had to deal with. And so it definitely seems like he was not well prepared to handle that kind of situation. Probably didn't have any experience handling homicide cases, let alone a mass murder case where it's not just a single homicide, but you have a, an entire or found dead in their beds. Uh, that's a whole lot to handle. And I imagine even more so with it being such a small community, there's probably more interest garnered than at that point because in a bigger city, I would imagine it wouldn't kick up as much because people wouldn't know them as well and so you wouldn't have as many people knowing them and I I don't want to say not caring as much because I mean of course people still care but I mean they don't wouldn't know them personally and and be as immediately upset by it I guess whereas in such a small yeah. town where they were so close already I imagine that didn't help his case either that everybody wanted to know exactly what happened and what's going on and and get on over there and contaminate the crime scene so absolutely and as far as like larger communities versus smaller communities like smaller communities you have that tight-knit grip typically wherever you go with a smaller community but when you look at larger communities these types of cases even at that time could have possibly like fallen into the cracks but a full family annihilation case is one of those things that definitely gets people going like what the hell is happening Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a very disturbing case. Um, I don't know how it was back then, per se, but nowadays I feel like when you think of homicide, you generally think of gang violence or somebody being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or even if you're thinking of homicide within the home, it's usually domestic violence where it's only perhaps one or two people are the victims so for an entire family and not a small family either a very large family with a, a lot of children both the mother and father being murdered and then in addition to the family the two little girls that were staying over as well that's extreme I mean mm -hmm. I, even nowadays that would be very extreme I think no matter what time period you're looking at, that's quite a case there. Very shocking, very disturbing. And then the nature of death as well is very gory and visceral and just horrifying, I suppose, where I'm sure it just attracted a lot of attention with the nature of uh, the case in particular yeah absolutely and even going on to the gory details like with him returning back upstairs like first off when you use weapons that bludgeon or stab it's typically related to crimes of passion mm. which are fueled by like anger usually which I think is why Frank Jones was a high suspect because it was like he was mad with that family. Yeah, definitely. So when the murderer went back upstairs after killing Lena and Ina, 
downstairs and decided to go through methodically and just desecrate those corpses. It, it says to me that something bigger might have been in play. And it says to me that there was somebody that was very, very, very angry with this family. Oh, yeah, that was definitely overkill going back through again. Yeah, if the point of the deed was just to kill the people, there I mean, there I assume there's much cleaner ways to go about that, less messy, less gory, and a lot less work in terms of physical exertion. So to go through that much trouble, and especially to go around a second time and do it again, and I believe you said, or I read it, I believe you said it though, it, wasn't it like 30 times was how many times each individual was struck with the axe? That's very mm-hmm. excessive, especially when we're not only talking about a single person. I mean, he went through a whole household and hit each individual that many times, so that definitely seems like there was something greater fueling this crime something that was going on that uh led him or speculating him uh to do such a thing yeah for sure and many people might be going like why didn't you say he him at the beginning i used they them because honestly if we've learned anything in the 21st century women are capable of doing this too and most likely for this type of a crime, they might not have even been looked at. Oh, yeah. Because it was such a gruesome time, like, crime in the time frame. Saw women as being, like, these sweet little angels that make you pies and take care of the kids and clean the house. Like, they don't kill people. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. So. Oh my gosh, yeah, I doubt they would have even given it a thought that it could possibly be a female, and and not just the, they don't kill people, but the, the method, that would have taken some strength to, d- to be mm-hmm. throwing an axe around that much, so I think that would be the other factor that would make them automatically assume it couldn't be a female, is how could there be a woman that strong to hit each of these individuals that many times with a big heavy axe? So yeah, I think it's definitely something that never would have crossed their minds that it could potentially be a a, uh, a female, but definitely possible. Totally yep. could have been a female, but yeah, we don't have any suspects that were female to look at though, since I doubt they even considered that. <laughs> right. I'm like, I feel like you missed a whole demographic there. <laughs> whole right. But like. Anger can make you do some really incredible things. And even, like, as far as, like, being female and thrusting an axe down multiple times, like, if you're pissed enough to do it, you'll do it. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure there'd be adrenaline pumping, too, which mm-hmm. I, I'm sure helps with Because that. what happens if they wake up? Am I going to get attacked? Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't discount a woman being capable of the crime. I'm not sure in this case that it was a woman, since it seems like we do have a suspect that it could be very plausible Absolutely. it was him. Uh, but I would, would not put it past a woman to be capable of it. I definitely think it's possible that it could be a woman. Yep. 
<laughs> I'll do the the hard exhale for you. But that's all I have for you. The Velisca axe murder victims are buried in the Velisca Cemetery, located in Montgomery County. There are multiple different sources. The Find the Grave um, site does have sponsors to put flowers on their graves if you want to. And there's also funding set up to help with the renovations and maintaining of the Villisca Axe Murder House, which we will talk about next episode. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, a big shout out to Morbid. You guys saved my ass today. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and thank you, Katie, for presenting us with such a detailed case. Uh, like Katie said, if you're interested in getting even more details, definitely go check out Morbid and, and dig into it. But otherwise, I'm sure uh, Katie will have a list of references to check out as well if you are interested in reading up on this case some more to learn more and try to decide for yourself who you think was the murderer in this case. But thank you for joining us. <laughs> yep. And we will see you next week for more of the Velisca Axe Murder House. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are you haunted too?